Welcome to Heaven and Earth. I'm joined with Matthew Barrett, and I'm excited to talk to you about the Trinity. It is, I guess, for, for my part, the things that I find most thrilling in theology is kind of who God is, who Christ is. I think those are the center of things. And you're kind of hitting that first um, side of it, the attributes of God and who the Trinity is and all that kind of stuff in your writing and in your theological work. So as we get going, do you mind kind of just introducing yourself in a way that maybe makes sense to someone listening who does not know the name Matthew Barrett? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I teach systematic theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm originally from the West Coast. So California, my wife, she's from Seattle. Um, and we have uh, four beautiful kids. And in fact, my, uh, my youngest since Godzilla and King Kong comes out in the states i think it came out yesterday my youngest did it? okay uh, passed this to me uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. and actually this <laughs> so, is mine that you saw that i got yeah, yeah, there you go there <laughs> you <Sweet>. go <laughs> <laughs> but i have i do have um not just a son who wants to go see you know who's gonna win godzilla versus king kong but uh also three three daughters and so i get lots of hearts as well <laughs> good good good, good. But, um yeah uh, i i as I mentioned, I teach systematic theology, but I love to write uh, in theology as well. And so um, two books that I've written recently, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, and then more recently, Simply Trinity, The mm. Undomesticated Father, Son, Spirit. So I'm, uh, you know, what, what else could we be doing that would be better than, you know, a conversation on the Trinity? Hey, man, well, we're made for God, and so it's nice to be able to return to him by knowing him. So I appreciate that you're trying to uh, popularize the right word, because hopefully God's somewhat popular for evangelicals, but at least to, to make God known in the way that he has been understood in the church for a couple thousand years as the Holy Spirit has grown and matured our understanding of what scripture reveals. I, I thought it might be useful to get going by, by, let me just define the Trinity in a bad way and, and let you... Uh, just respond to like, like someone in your church comes up to you and says, look, there's, there's three parts to the Trinity. There's the father part, the son part, and the Holy Spirit part. They do different things and they work together. Uh, and, and tomorrow's Good Friday. And this is where the father punishes the son on the cross and vents his hatred towards him. Isn't it great that we have this God? So how do you mentor me uh, if I say that to you? And we have a good relationship. So you're, you're free to kind of speak into my life. What kinds of things have I said wrong? And I know that I said it over the in an over-the-top way, but, yeah. but I think a lot of people talk similar to how I talk, and they're not yeah. intending anything by it, but there's there is a mis there are some mistakes that I made, at least two that I can think of, maybe more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if we could start with the first mistake, okay, okay, uh, which is father, son, spirit, these are just parts of God. I I think a lot of Christians do think that way. They they think of uh, and I think the reason why, though there, there may be lots of reasons, but one reason why is uh, as finite and sinful fallen creatures, we, we tend to uh, project our assumptions uh, that we see, you know, when we look at each other back onto God. And so we, when we look at ourselves or society or the way that you and I cooperate or work together or are you know in sync with one another um we can it's very dangerous we can we can just assume well that must just be how we 
add up persons of the Trinity to somehow get this one God. And that's a very dangerous error because that would mean God is uh, made up of parts. And if that's the case, then uh, he is no longer one. Uh, when we describe unity, you know, you and I, we, we might say, hey, let's, uh, let's team up together on, on, a, on a project, you know, whatever that project is, and, and we might communicate or cooperate with each other or not, you know, um, but that's not the type of unity we should be referring to when we're describing the Trinity. Uh, it's, a, it's a very different type of unity than that. Um, Father, Son, and Spirit are one in nature, in, in essence. Uh, as theologians, there's a certain vocabulary that draws uh, from the concepts of Scripture. Uh, some of it, uh, some of this vocabulary is actually quite crucial to preserving the unity or simplicity of God. And, and so that word simplicity doesn't mean that God is, you know, basic or elementary or easy to understand. Um, anyone who's learned a little theology knows that's not the case, uh, but rather simplicity refers to the fact that God is one. He's a God without parts. He is indivisible and inseparable in his very essence. Uh, his attributes, for example, these are not parts that somehow you tally up or cut up like a pie to, to somehow get God as a whole. Rather, uh, his essence just is his attributes. And this is one of the reasons why scripture can speak this way to say God is holy. He doesn't just possess holiness at one point or another. He, he is holy. Or scripture can say he is love. It's not that he becomes more loving or he was less loving before. He, he just is love from, from eternity. Uh, so when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to be careful then we don't think of Father, Son, and Spirit as if, oh, the Father's, you know, a certain percentage of, of God, and then the Son's, well, he, the Son's a lesser percentage of God. Uh, that would be disastrous. Um, it, it could result in tritheism, uh, an ancient heresy. Uh, it could also result in a type of hierarchy or subordination in which uh, one person or more than one person of the Godhead is less in some way than another. So when we describe the, the Trinity, um, we have to say, first of all, these persons, um, uh, they, they are what we would call subsistences. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the one essence subsists or exists in Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. And if that's, if that's the case, to kind of use that fancier theological language, um, well, that actually defines God's unity in a way that's very different from, from the way that, you know, you or I might be unified. God isn't just, the persons of the Trinity aren't just like cooperating with each other, say, in the work of salvation. They uh, are inseparable and indivisible in their the external works of creation, providence, and salvation. Uh, why? Be, well, because the reason they, they work as one is because they are one. They are one, in essence, with one another. There's a lot more we could say, of course, yeah. but, but maybe that's a starting point. We'll talk about books at the end and highlight yours as well, but um, uh, Adonis Vidu's new book, 
yes. it's really helpful in this regard. <laughs> just, it's fresh in my mind. I've been, I was reading it today even. Uh, it's, it's helpful to understand how there's, there's, there's something three that works out in the economy of salvation. And that something that's three is also one. Um, we, read that book if you want to, but we'll jump back into this conversation. Okay, so that's helpful. So there is, we are monotheists. We believe in one God. We confess one God. And yet there is uh, something that is three <laughs> as well. <laughs> but we don't want to fall into the ditch of a sort of a tritheism or in such a way that there's almost like three individual characters in God. Yeah. That's not super helpful. It might be useful to know, um, if, if I were to tell, uh, tell someone today that I'm a human person, generally that kind of sounds like, okay, well, I, have a, I have a personality and a character to, to myself. Um, in church history, when they're defining these things, like how did theologians understand the word person? Because I think if you say something like there's three persons in one God, people think, oh, three different characters, but that's right. not it, is it? Yeah, when you go back to say the 20th century, so not that long ago, and we're still feeling the effects of this, uh, there is a strong influence, uh, though it's diverse, there's a, there's a strong influence of, of social Trinitarian thought. Uh, it's very fascinating because on the one hand, uh, many said, oh, we're having, we're experiencing a revival of Trinitarian thought, a renaissance even. Uh, but as time has gone on, you've had a number of theologians and historians, you think of like a Lewis Ayers, for example, or a Stephen Holmes, both who have written uh, fantastic books. They have kind of revisited the 20th century and said, well, what kind of Trinity exactly was, were we all excited about? <laughs> and one of the things that, you know, many have pointed out since is, well, just the point you, you just made, um, there, there tended to be an assumption and sometimes a full-fledged argument that the persons of the Godhead are persons like, like you and I are persons. Um, and so they started speaking of Father, Son, Spirit as having their own separate centers of consciousness, even will, which raised the issue of, okay, are there, are there now three wills in, in the Godhead? Uh, that, that brought on the charge of, of tritheism pretty quickly. And uh, on top of that, the, the vocabulary was telling. Um, theologians in the 20th century, a lot of modern theologians started to speak of the Trinity. Uh, well, if that's how you're going to define a person, well, then they started speaking of the Trinity more in terms of uh, a society, a type of community in which there's this mutual cooperation and mutuality. The, the issue, though, is that if, if you go way back in history and, and actually look at uh, how the Trinity has been taught uh, in, since the fathers, it's very different than that. Um, and I think there's good reason why. Uh, instead of defining the, the persons in that way or the Trinity as a, as a type of cooperative society, um, they, they spoke through a very different type of vocabulary to say, well, take the Nicene Creed, for example, you know, this in the fourth century. Um, I think it's telling that when the fathers described what distinguishes the persons, uh, take the son, for example, they, they said, well, uh, scripture identifies one thing alone that distinguishes the son. It's bound up in the very name son. It means he is begotten. 
Uh, but this is the eternal sun we're talking about. So be careful. We don't project, you know, our human understanding of, of sonship. Um, this is the eternal sun. So this is the sun who's begotten from eternity. He's begotten from the father from eternity. That's what it means for the father to be father and the son to be son. Uh, but they were very careful to say, yeah, that distinguishes, that alone distinguishes the son. But they were very careful to, at the same time, preserve the equality and the unity between father and the son. Uh, they're paying attention to, you know, John's gospel when Jesus says, I am one with the father. Well, on the heels of, of those type of biblical statements, uh, many of the church fathers said, well, this is the son who is begotten from the father, but this is the son who's begotten from the father's essence. And, and, and so you can see how this, this then protected the co-equality of the, the son with the father and, and their context over against a uh, very strong subordinationism at the time, which was called Arianism. Uh, all that to say, uh, you can see how there's just a drastic difference between uh, what in, in Christian orthodoxy define the Trinity, Trinity's unity and distinction, and then more recently uh, redefine the Trinity more as a, a type of a social uh, social unit. So that uh, we're not always aware, though, in the 21st century, we're not always very aware of that. And uh, I argue in my book that whether we realize it or not, uh, some of that 20th century redefinition of the Trinity has, has seeped in to our own camp. And you've got evangelical theologians, even evangelical philosophers saying things like, oh, well, uh, the most essential thing about the Trinity is that they are separate individuals, that they have their own centers of consciousness and will. And uh, I, or, or that they're just roles. And, and, and maybe there can even be a type of functional hierarchy. Well, all this, the, the, notice with each of those moves, we may actually have absorbed um, kind of the effects of social Trinitarianism over the last century more than we like to admit. Well, it is interesting to me that we, we've become so worried, I think, as evangelicals about the influence of kind of worldliness and all this kind of stuff to the point that we maybe sometimes shy away from studying historical movements and sociology and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yet even the basic definition of person has changed so dramatically over the last hundred and so years that if we don't know that, we come to some of these earlier confessional documents and say, well, there's one essence and three persons. And then we assume our current categories backwards into those theological categories where they mean something entirely, entirely different. And what you're trying to do, I mean, to restate what we're trying to say maybe is, look, you're trying to balance monotheism, one God, with the biblical data that there are three persons in God. <laughs> and the Father one, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, all that kind of language. Um, one thing, too, that uh, I just want to add that I think contributes to what you're saying is if, if you look at some of the Chalcedonian explanations of the Christology, especially in the works of uh, Maximus the Confessor, it's very clear that Christ, to be genuinely divine and genuinely human, must share both in the divine will and in standard kind of genuine human will. But by definition, there must therefore be two wills. But if he's one person, 
then he can't have two wills in one person. I mean, that, that, that's not how that works. It has to be two wills in, in nature. And therefore, you can already kind of see that the, even the Chalcedonian logic, which is the Nicene logic, identifies will according to, to nature, not person, as we might like to do today. I mean, it's just an interesting historical point. But you, if, you, if you start messing with these categories, then you, you actually mess with uh, Christology as well, or at least the coherence of it. Yeah, that, that's right. You, you do. Uh, it's not as if we can just talk about you know, theology proper or the doctrine of God. Uh, it, if you go wrong in the doctrine of God, the consequences for everything else in theology, especially Christology, are serious. And uh, that's something that I think we, uh, we, we shouldn't take lightly. Um, it, it's one of the reasons why, um, and I try to point this out in different ways with my own students, that uh, you know, if, if, you, if you go that direction uh, and start talking about multiple wills, or even, even more accidentally, if you start to, to talk about the persons in a way that undermines the one will or inseparable operations, by the time you get to Christology, uh, you, you, it, becomes, it, it becomes a mess, uh, to be frank, <laughs> because at that point, it's very difficult then to preserve the integrity of both the human nature and the human will, and then the divine nature and the divine will in this single hypostatic person. And that has all, the, all kinds uh, of consequences. I, I think, I mean, I don't talk about this so much in my book uh, really at all, but uh, I think the recent rise in evangelicalism of a, of a type of um, functional canonic Christology is not random. I, I think this type of mindset, uh, which you know, in which the the son is the son's divine nature is is considered uh, passive or almost inoperative. Um, I, that stems from a certain understanding of of God and the Trinity. So it's it, it you're right it's all it's all connected and it's a it's a really good reminder uh, this won't surprise you that I'm about to say this but it's a really good encouragement <laughs> that we need systematic theology and uh, we we can't just say oh just give me that chapter and verse and uh, actually we we have to we have to do systematic theology and ask these bigger questions and try to determine are are we being consistent or or actually are are we inconsistent with the way our, our doctrine of God and our Christology are lining up. Yeah. God reveals himself to be an ordered God. And if we just take Bible verses and say, who cares if they appear to contradict each other in this, in our thought, then it seems to be uh, we run into a problem that our, the coherence of our doctrine doesn't cohere with the nature of God. Uh, that's an issue. I don't know if you bring this up in your book, but it's, I mean, added to kind of the things that we're saying, I mean, the, the basic narrative of the Bible is that the father sends a son into the world, redeem the world, the spirit perfects the work and the church is created. So you have father, son, spirit, church. I think in my view, this is kind of the, the, the early uh, rule of faith that became the Nicene Creed. It's really a way to restate the gospel, but in a sort of catechal summary form. It's not the narrative form that we're used to in, in scripture. But it's our most a restatement of it. Father, Son, uh, Spirit, Church. 
And so that's why like when you get to a book like yours on the Trinity, which I haven't read yet, but it's, it's on route in the mail, I guess, um, is that one, we're talking about the Trinity at one level and it's totally related to Christology at another level, but at the same time, it's deeply related to the gospel. <laughs> and I mean, traditionally, uh, Trinity, Christ, gospel are kind of the, the Trinity of central things that the church worked out. Um, so it's all really important. So maybe you could just kind of walk me through it. Is this a connection you make in your book and in your thinking? Like how, how does knowing the Trinity, like, cause we want, we like to be gospel centered. I think that's right. So I'm the executive director of the gospel coalition Canada. So I like to be gospel centered. When I think of that, I think uh, the father sent the son into the world who died according to scripture, rose according to scripture, and that he became a life-giving spirit to create the church. First Corinthians 15, basically. Um, that's, that's a triune shape to how I understand gospel. Is this, is this the way you think about it, or how would you kind of correlate those things? Well, I, I think that it's a good thing to say we're gospel-centered, right? Um, that we are uh, very much concerned with um, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. More broadly, we could say as Christians, as we read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, uh, we want to pay attention to the way that God has, um, the mission that God has embarked on for the sake of our salvation. So our attention naturally is going to be a lot on what we call salvation or redemptive history. Um, and we, we draw our attention to this every time we, we pick up the Bible and we read, whether it's um, the creation narrative or, or the, the advent of, of of the uh, Son of God and the Incarnation, um, our focus is a lot of times on salvation history. And that's a good thing. Um, however, uh, one uh, consequence, maybe unintentional consequence, is that we can so focus on what God has done for us. We can so limit ourselves to salvation history that we never actually consider who God is apart from us or whether God is apart from us. And so uh, that's a real danger because uh, worst case scenario, we, we could actually assume that God is, is dependent upon us and, and compromise his aseity. Um, all that to say, yes, we want to be gospel centered, but if we don't understand who, God, who this God is apart from the gospel, apart from creation, uh, we, we do run the risk of actually misunderstanding who he is and, and how he operates in, in salvation. And, and that's serious. So on the one hand, just to, to take some of the things you, you just said, yes, uh, the father sends his son to be incarnate. And the Father and, and Son, I would argue, then give to us the Holy Spirit to, to indwell us and, and to sanctify us. Um, but uh, we also need our churches and we need Christians to, to say, well, why is that the case? And uh, yes, I, I'm concerned about this salvation, but, but who must God be? Who must God be to give us this great salvation? And that's where I think both, both the scriptures 
uh, and the Christian tradition can be so helpful uh, because we can then turn to say, well, does Jesus have something to say? Uh, he does. He, he seems to, to understand that the reason he is sent by the Father for the sake of our salvation is because he is none other than the only begotten Son from the Father from all eternity. Uh, well, if you put those dots, connect those dots to one another, that's crucial. And that means that unless this is the only begotten Son, begotten from the Father's essence from eternity, unless that's true, then he actually can't accomplish the great work of salvation that he does accomplish in salvation history. <laughs> so we don't always realize it, but if, if we say, oh, you know, we don't want to think about who God is in and of himself, uh, that's speculation, um, or, or that doesn't concern us, or that's irrelevant. Well, we don't realize it, but we're actually cutting off the legs from under us uh, when we want to talk about, about salvation. I think, uh, despite kind of the caricatures and objections out there to, to thinking about theology, I, I, I like to point people to John's gospel in particular, because John doesn't seem to have this allergy to, to eternity like we do. <laughs> uh, in, in fact, John starts off his gospel talking about metaphysics, the word who was with God, the word who was God, and then he's going to go on to talk about how this word is the son who's begotten from the father. And then he's going to, on that foundation, then he's ready to establish, well, the gospel of this son. Well, that's a, that is a, John has a certain uh, uh, ease with moving back and forth that way in a way that doesn't compromise either who God is in and of himself or what God has done in salvation history and how that reveals to us who God is in and of himself. We, though, tend to get a bit nervous or we, we honestly just have no idea how to make that how to make that transition. The language I like to encourage people to use is, listen, wonderful. You're focusing on the missions of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that has everything to do with the gospel. But don't forget that these missions say something very specific about mm -hmm. processions, about the Son being begotten and the Spirit being spirated and so on. So I, we need, that's really foreign to churchgoers and to pastors and to students today. And, uh, but when you read uh, the old books, uh, they talk about it all the time. Yeah, it's one of those things that once you start talking about the missions, it becomes almost necessary to infer by some sort of resemblance, by analogy, what's, you know, for lack of a better word, behind all that. Um, you did talk about speculation and how that could feel like a speculative thing. I'm going to ask you a speculative question just for fun. Um, and you, you, we slightly talked about it, I think, or at least about in my head. Um, it's this. Was there a time before creation where God was? And if there were a time before creation, what was he doing? Oh, you, you like to throw a, throw a hard ones, don't you? I, I like, I like these curveballs. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a natural transition from the gospel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of, a lot of Christians will answer that question 
or, or maybe just assume, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. And they will say, God was bored. He was, he, he needs us. Like he was okay. lonely. He was lonely. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and he, or he was playing with himself like in the threeness in the social way. That's right. And so um, God created us and, and now he's far more fulfilled and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, well, actually, uh, whether it's, you know, a passage like Acts 17 or, goodness, the entire book of Isaiah, uh, Scripture is pretty clear that um, God does not need you. <laughs> and that's a bit humbling, I know, to hear uh, that God does not need you. Uh, he's given you the privilege of, of participating in his kingdom, but, but he doesn't need you. You know, if, if I die today or you die, die today, um, his kingdom will continue and God will remain God regardless. Uh, so just on a practical note, uh, I, think, I think we need to hear that. Uh, that said, when we think about who God is, uh, apart from the world and apart from creation and providence and salvation, um, we have to remember who, who this God is, right? Uh, this, is, this is a God uh, who is so uh, maximally alive, or as the fathers like to say, he is pure act, uh, that uh, he has no, no need. Uh, he has, he, he, there's no sense of becoming as if he must become something uh, that he wasn't before or that he lacked before. Uh, as, as many of the fathers like to say, he is the fullness of being itself. Well, if that's the case, then, then actually we can't create God in our own image. Like you and I are very needy creatures. We're very dependent creatures. But that is not the case with God, uh, who, is, who is life in and of himself. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, so, so Christians in ages past have gone to such, such lengths to emphasize what's called God's aseity and to say that uh, this triune God uh, does not depend on you. And actually, that was a foundational belief that then established, say, creation out of nothing. It assumes that. It assumes God's aseity. Otherwise, otherwise, creation out of nothing does, doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. I want to ask uh, one last question before we just kind of uh, name your book and how to find it and close our time here. Um, you and I are both Baptists. And that means we believe that we are baptized into the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know about your experience, but in most baptismal services that I've been to, usually someone goes up and for about five minutes, they relay their sort of subjective experience of, of life. And then they're baptized. I wonder with our, with the Trinitarian theology you're talking about and the way that we think about confessions, wouldn't it make, I mean, maybe this is too controversial, but maybe this is the most controversial part. Wouldn't it make better sense to say that our, that our baptism is actually an objective confession about God rather than our subjective confession about our experience? I'm not saying that's unimportant, side note. We should share our testimony in terms, but I'm saying in a baptismal service, we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Isn't it more about the objective confessional side? Like, I'm just curious what that might look like. And I mean, just in your opinion for baptismal practice, for even for Baptists who believe in credo baptism, namely that you 
uh, that you have a personal faith before you're baptized? Yeah, I, I appreciate this question. And it's not one I usually get uh, on the Trinity, but, uh, but, it, but as you, you've kind of mentioned, it, it is uh, actually quite relevant. Uh, yeah, there is a tendency, isn't there? Um, baptism is a, is a wonderful event, but there is a tendency to treat it purely in terms of the subjective. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we talk about how uh, we talk about us and, and we talk about um, the, the way that this has impacted us or influenced us and, and so on. Now, now, as you're saying, as you qualified, um, especially as a, as a credo Baptist, um, yes, absolutely. There, there should be uh, mention of the believer's faith. Absolutely. Um, but we, we have to remember this, uh, faith, faith in what? Uh, or, or maybe we should say faith in whom, right? Um, we're, not, we're not up there testifying to ourselves. Um, the, the very faith that we, we have been given has been given to us by God, and it's a faith that is in God, <laughs> which means that, yeah, when Jesus gives that command to baptize them in the, the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, that should be a clue to us that uh, our baptism, as much as this may, uh, this, this obviously involves our faith in Jesus Christ, our baptism is actually a picture of, of what this Trinitarian God has done to accomplish salvation, to raise us from death to new life by by the Father's own resurrected Son, uh, to breathe new life into us through the Holy Spirit. Well, if all of that if all of that is true, then certainly baptism should point our eyes, the whole congregation's eyes, upward, uh, so that. It, it, in the end, the end goal is, is not just merely to focus on, you know, Sally or Bobby who, who's being baptized that day, but to praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the great work of salvation that has been accomplished and is now being celebrated. If that approach to baptism and I would say, actually, we could talk. We could go further and talk about the Lord's Supper. Something similar. We we run into some similar issues and problems. Um, but all that to say, these ordinary means of grace, as they're called sometimes, um, they're they're meant ultimately to draw our gaze upon the one God, uh, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, that's a that means then that our, our doctrine of the Trinity should shine bright. It should radiate in the baptism event. You know, we've been talking about processions and, and, and how the Son is from the Father, from all eternity, and the Spirit is spirated from. But uh, notice also how in salvation, there is a bit of a reversal uh, so that 
subjectively I'm, I'm talking about, not, not God himself, but subjectively as we experience it, there's a type of reversal so that uh, the spirit uh, regenerates us, the spirit makes us alive, the spirit opens our eyes to Jesus Christ. And we are united then to Christ. Uh, and, and through the grace of Christ, we then, we then receive the, the love of the father who says to us, you are my child hmm. that we experience that, but we don't all always in our church settings. And even individually, we don't always realize how Trinitarian our own salvation is and how that ultimately should move even beyond ourselves and point us towards who this, this triune God is uh, apart apart from our subjective experience. All that to say, what happens in the economy of salvation, um, that's, that's meant to, to draw us to the glory of this Trinitarian God um, in and of himself and, and, and for the sake of, of worship and doxology. Well, it sure is interesting that Jesus told us to teach baptize and to remember at the supper and baptism the main way that we sort of enter into the covenant at least publicly is in a very triune way you talk about being gospel centered but i think that has to include father son and spirit <laughs> and uh i i wonder i mean i so my generation i think was born a little bit after the the, the baptism wars so i never really grew up in this idea of like who cares about modes of baptism? I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm just saying I never grew up in that kind of battle. And yet I wonder if because of that battle, we've been shy to talk about the meaning of baptism and what that actually signifies and exhibits to us. But anyways, that's a different topic for another day. I really appreciate you talking to me. I want to finish by highlighting your works. You mentioned them at the beginning. Uh, None greater is your, is your work on the attributes of God. And right. Or did I get that wrong? Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, I was waiting. Like, uh, and then your new book um, on the Trinity, what's the name of the, the Trinity book again? Simply Trinity. Simply Trinity. Unmanipulated father, son, and spirit. And uh, it's with uh, Baker. Very good. That's coming in the mail. So I'll, I'll read it. I will uh, maybe review it if I can find the time. Um, I, uh, and so, okay, those are the two books. Um, I'll link to them, all that kind of stuff pretty easily. Is there anything else that you've written that might be relevant that we've talked about in terms of the discussion today that you can kind of point to? Well, I've written another book uh, more recently called uh, Canon, Covenant, and Christology. Mm. All and right. that's yeah. with uh, IVP. And um, if you enjoy uh, None Greater or Simply Trinity and and you know, want to want to go a little bit deeper into you know how how does who God is how how does that affect uh, how we interpret the Bible the canon Christ, you know how how we understand Christ and that that book may well you may enjoy that one as well. So simply Trinity is seems to be like a good way to kind of enter into the sort of ideas concepts notions of Trinitarian theology. Once you get past that, uh, what are the like? just name a few books. Like what are great works on Trinitarian theology that we should all read? And it could be like that we need to take 10 years to prepare for, or even a couple. So, so go as, as far as you want in terms of depth here. Well, uh, I, I like to uh, point 
people to, to the old books. And mm-hmm. as much as I read, you know, there's many good contemporary books, but I like to, to point folks back and maybe give you your roots uh, and give you a bit of heritage. First off, I would say, just start with a couple paragraphs and read the Nicene Creed. You can Google it. And uh, I, I think you, you'll be surprised how long you, you take to actually think through just a few paragraphs and from there, uh, read some of the fathers. So read Athanasius in his, it's just a little book on the incarnation. Get the, get the one with C.S. Lewis's uh, introduction. Yeah, St. Uh, Vladimir's Press. Um, yeah. And then I would say, uh, read, read a giant, right? Read an Augustine and his confessions or uh, read, uh, read someone like Anselm in particular, you can find there's a, it's published by Oxford, you can get for I think 12, 15 bucks, uh, his major works, uh, read his proslogion, his monologion, in which he refl- he contemplates who, who is this God, he'll talk about the attributes of God, the Trinity, but you'll be surprised, uh, it's in a prayerful tone, and at the end of these works, he has a lot to say about the Christian life, about uh, how you find your your greatest happiness in who this God is, and I think you will find it quite quite devotional. Um, and then I'll I'll just mention uh, maybe one more. <laughs> um, I, I I could think of you know so so many others. Um, if you're looking for maybe a, a good systematic theology, um, so obviously this would include the Trinity, but so much more. Um, there's a, a book published by a Baker Academic by Herman Bavink, uh, a Dutch Reformed uh, theologian, and it's called Reformed Dogmatics. And this will give you uh, some really solid grant, ground on which to stand, not just for your doctrine of the Trinity. His, his section on the doctrine of God is... It, it, it's uh, you can't beat it, but um, as you read through the other doctrines of the faith, um, you'll find Bavink to be a very reliable guide. Incredibly helpful. Thank you for talking, Matthew. It was fun to, I guess, get to know you. This is the first time we've really talked before. Yeah, so it was fun to meet you, get to know you a little bit, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Absolutely glad to do it, and uh, thanks for having me.